You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I worry about lots of things. Why about human uniqueness? Human beings, Homo sapiens, are mammals of the order primates, of the family Homididae, the great apes. Human beings are animals, yet human mentality differs dramatically from animal mentality. Obvious? Sure. We are so familiar with humans and animals. But then, for a moment, I detach myself from common knowledge, and the familiar becomes strange. Physically, humans and animals seem so similar. Mentally, humans seem so superior. Which surprises me more, the similarities or the differences? I go after the differences. How do humans differ from animals? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I am taken by human uniqueness. But, like a cloud, it is hard to grasp. Compared with animals, our bodies have similar parts cells, organs, bones, blood. But bodies and their functions, metabolism, mobility, and the like, are less important. Brains and their outputs, perception, cognition, behavior, are most important. How do human brains compare with animal brains? How do human behaviors contrast with animal behaviors? I go to London, to the Institute of Philosophy at the University of London, to meet the distinguished neuroscientist, Colin Blakemore. Colin, what can we begin to say about the relationship between human brains and animal brains? Well, uh, the first thing is to emphasize the continuity. Um, the similarities are so much more impressive, mm. actually, than the differences. Mm. Every area, nameable area, major division of the human brain can be identified in other species and you can follow its development through evolution. Mm. The really distinctive thing about human brains is the size of the forebrain, the mm. cerebral hemispheres, the, you know, the mm. wrinkled bit on the, on mm. the top. Four times bigger area mm. of cerebral cortex in a human being than in a, than in a chimpanzee, so that's very significant. And it isn't just as if the growth and the expansion of the cerebral cortex has been like blowing up a balloon. Extra bits have been added. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the sensory areas of the human brain, the visual, the auditory, and the touch areas here, you can see those in a very simple mammal. But that's just about all there is mm -hmm. in the cerebral mm -hmm. cortex. In the human brain, those areas are a tiny fraction of the total, and lots of other stuff's been mm -hmm. added in between. But what about animals that have larger brains than humans? I mean, you have elephants? Elephants, yeah. whales. Whales can have brains twice as big or more. Sure. They, have smaller, they have smaller numbers of nerve cells. Mm -hmm. The human brain has, in absolute terms, 
more nerve cells than any other mm. brain. Mm. So total numbers of neurons is important because mm. total numbers of neurons maps onto the total number of connections, therefore the total number mm. of computing um, elements. Mm. So let's take the key characteristic of the human brain, which is the large forebrain. Yes, there's been a massive extra expansion of, of the frontal lobes. You ask, what, is the, what do the frontal lobes do? They seem to be involved in, in planning, in regulating attention, in um, long-term planning for the future, organizing behavior, both in the short time period and the very long time period. They seem to be responsible for what we, what, what, what's loosely called voluntary action, deciding when to do things and on what grounds, making decisions about what to, what to do. And a good deal of that has an inhibitory function. Yeah, not unique to human beings. I mean, your pet dog presumably behaves yeah. itself pretty right. well right. in right. toilet training. Right. So, right. Right. you know, we can all learn these things. But you're right, um, frontal, frontal function, at least revealed by the effects of damage mm -hmm. to frontal lobes, mm -hmm. seems to be at least in part inhibition of of impulse. Right. So the whole process of, of development in human beings, uh, whereas it may track how animals develop, mm. because there's a larger forebrain, that could have a dramatic impact on the output of the brain. Yeah. Well, you have to remember, of course, that you know human beings live a long time compared with most um, animals, and they spend an awful awfully big part of their lives essentially continuing to mature and develop. Most animals have their, their development, cognitive and brain development, compressed mm. into a very short period of time. Okay. So there's much, much more time mm. for, for human beings mm. to, to learn, to, to form the new connections mm. that are involved in learning, to modify their own brains. But when you get to our age, it's, it's over? Well, I you know, I hope it's still going on. <laughs> Don't you? I hope so. <laughs> Comparing human brains to animal brains, Collins stresses the continuities. The similarities, he says, are more impressive than the differences. There is nothing in the human brain, not in the animal brain. But sizes differ, absolute and relative, especially our large frontal lobes and the extra bits of the human cerebral cortex. How then to account for the spectacular superiority of human mentality? How can a sharp step function leap in human thought arise from a simple continuum increase in the human brain from those extra bits? Still at the Institute of Philosophy, I visit its director, Barry Smith. Barry specializes in the philosophy of taste. So he invites me to a wine bar. Barry, it's very controversial, the distinction between human animals and other animals, particularly mammals. Uh, what can we say about the, uh, uh, the nature of language, which many people talk about as a key differentiator? language really stands out. Here's something that all human infants in normal development acquire by the age of 20 months, two years, uh, without explicit training. Nonetheless, something happens that organizes these words into meaningful structured sentences and they share a structure across all human uh, countries. Now that structure is only available to humans and therefore there seems to be something distinctively different about the brains of humans that endows us with this capacity. Now, what does language do for us? Well, I think it organizes the uh, contents of the mind in a way that is dimension shifted from other animals. 
instead of just being focused on immediate perceptual experience, my encounters with things in the environment, there's a way in which I can refer to and talk about things that are not here and happen at other times, and also a way in which language becomes an interface between minds. That way in which we seem to have an immediate access to other people's thinking because we put our minds into our words. We literally voice our thoughts. And this, this is probably uh, a way in which language is being used to unite minds into uh, societies and into culture. What about the controversies about uh, whether animals do have language? Well, I think that's because we're using the word language in a common sense in a rather loose way. Now, other animals definitely have signaling systems. Birdsong has sequence. It has repetitive structures, really rather complex ones. They can invert them, they can, they can continue them, they can develop them, but they do not have this ability we have to have both hierarchical organization where one part of the sentence depends crucially on another and allows us to see dependences between actors and and people acted upon. And the other thing we have is recursion. That is, we can take a sentence and embed it within another sentence and then we can do that iteratively. I can say, Robert thinks that Jane is in Tower Bridge, but I can say, I wonder whether Robert thinks Jane is in Tower Bridge. Jane knows that I wonder whether <laughs> Robert thinks, and so on. So just by using these same words and permuting the, the wondering, thinking, believing, each of those sentences embedding others produces a new thought. And in fact, there are indefinitely many of them. So you and I have an infinite generative capacity. When I'm using structured parts of a grammatical sentence to put words in special relations of dependence with one another, that is what a certain part of the brain, often located on in the left hemisphere, that's what that part of the brain does. That's not available to other animals. Now that means that we can produce indefinitely many new thoughts. In fact, you'll hear many sentences each day and you'll read many sentences you've never heard before. And here's the interesting thing. They're just as easy to understand as those that are utterly familiar. No matter how we humans differ one from another, we all display the common denominator of language. Animals communicate. Animals have patterns of information transfer but none has the infinitely creative syntax and semantics of human language. And since language begets culture and culture accumulates, each human generation can build on its predecessor. But when I introspect, look inside, the innate power of my mentality seems to exceed that which is generated by culture. But I challenge myself. Do I assume too much human superiority? Do I undervalue animal mentality? I go to the University of Cambridge to meet psychologist Nicholas Humphrey. Nick claims that his work on animal behavior informs the evolution of human consciousness. Nick, some would claim that human beings are a step function in, in, different than the, the, the trajectory of the animal world. Others would say that it's a fairly uh, straightforward continuum. How do you compare human beings with the animal world mentally? Well, I've 
learned so much from animals about humans. When I was working with mountain gorillas, for example, in Rwanda, I looked at those extraordinary creatures with their huge heads and huge brains and wondered what they were doing with their brains <laughs> because the life of gorillas in the forest is incredibly simple. Um, food is easy to gather and abundant. There are no predators. So why do these creatures have this extraordinary intelligence. I realised that while the forest as such didn't present them with any great problems, their own community presented them with an amazing range of difficult issues to do with hierarchy, dominance, sex, child-rearing, everything else, which makes up the social life of a gorilla group. Now, humans, of course, are even more complex in their social life. Humans' brains, which are three times the size of gorillas, have evolved to solve the problems of living in human society, which is more than three times as complex as that of, of a gorilla troop. So um, continuities certainly exist, but then I think we're increasingly coming to realise that there are big discontinuities to the step function you referred to, but suddenly means that humans left behind their animal ancestors is a reality. It was created by a series of remarkable innovations in the human line. Probably in terms of cognitive functioning, language was the most important step. Language released new forms of thinking, new forms of, of social interaction, new ways of interacting with the world in humans, which fed on itself and basically gave us a runaway new form of life. But equally, I, I think that human consciousness is in its own league as well. I think humans have a more refined form of consciousness, deeper consciousness. And that's because in humans, consciousness has become the basis of our sense of ourselves as spiritual beings. And that is an outcome of natural selection, but it's one which has suddenly made us take off in a new direction. I actually think that what it's like to be a human is something completely unique. I mean that even at the sensory level. I think our experience of colours and sounds and, and tastes and so on has dimensions to it which may be hinted at in the consciousness of our animal ancestors, but which probably don't reach the heights which we experience. There's every reason to believe that one of the major developments in humans becoming what I've called natural psychologists, having this astonishing capacity to read the minds of other creatures, that that involved a new form of reflective consciousness. So far as we can tell, chimpanzees, apes in general, are really not very good at that. They don't engage in what's sometimes called belief desire psychology, in which we understand how humans operate by attributing to them states of belief, desires, intentions, and so on. We do that because we discover in our own case that that's the kind of creature that we are. We observe our own inner, the inner workings of our mind and can then project it onto other creatures. We can simulate their minds. Consciousness, I cannot escape its haunting presence. But it's the special nature of human consciousness that sets us apart from animals. A reflective self-consciousness a capacity to read the minds of others, a sense of the spiritual. How to probe human consciousness? How about comparing intense expressions of consciousness in humans and animals and see how they differ? 
Guess what I have in mind? Sex. I go to Los Angeles, to UCLA, to meet an extraordinarily diverse scientist, physiologist, ecologist, anthropologist, evolutionist, an explorer of traditional human societies, Jared Diamond. Jared, what are some of the differences between human sexuality and the sexuality we see in the rest of the animal kingdom? If you asked a dog what strikes you about human sexuality, the dog would say, there are three weird things about it. There's menopause. Can you believe they have sex when the woman is no longer fertile? There's concealed ovulation. I don't have any idea whether the woman of the house is fertile today or not. And the worst of all, they have sex in private. They go into the bedroom and close the door instead of having sex in public like any self-respecting dog. Okay, so let's, let's, let's determine why those occur and how they have evolved in, in an evolutionary sense or, or a cultural sense. Menopause, female menopause. The vast majority of mammal species remain fertile until they die. From an evolutionary point of view, you would think that a woman losing her fertility, she can't pass on her genes. Well, paradoxically, it turns out that menopause is the best way for an older woman to pass on her genes. Women die in childbirth. The older you are, the more likely you are to die in childbirth. So as you get older, um, it doesn't pay for you to try to grind out one more pregnancy. What does pay is to protect yourself against a pregnancy that may kill you and to remain alive and instead to devote yourself to provisioning and educating your grandchildren. But men don't die in childbirth, and that's why <laughs> I do not have male menopause. <laughs> okay, concealed ovulation. Here I am on the UCLA campus with thousands of gorgeous women around here, and, and yet when I walk on the campus, I don't have the faintest idea which of these gorgeous women are ovulating today <laughs> and which of them are in the 28 other days of their, their period. For the vast majority of mammal species, females advertise ovulation and humans don't. The result is that we humans, most of our sex is at a time when the female can't be fertilized. Our sex is, in a certain sense, a waste of biological effort and sperm-producing effort. What's the point of it? There are advantages to humans if you're going to have a man and woman stay together and rear a child and remain with each other. Yes, it takes some glue to keep them together. and. Wasted sex is one of those important clues. <laughs> Let's go to uh, what I think would be uh, our general favorite, uh, sex in private. Uh, you know, how on earth it, has that e evolved? Well, the answer is not written in some book that is, one has to speculate. My speculation would be that humans are a social species. We are living in constant proximity to all of these sexually attractive men and women with whom it's imprudent to have sex because we got the pay bond and we got to cooperate to raising the children. Um, if, as I was wandering around at UCLA through the departments, every time I came into office, there would be some couple on the desktop having sex, that would distract me and I wouldn't be concentrating on teaching geography. So my guess is that humans evolved to have sex in private so that we can function in a society in the presence of all these sexually attractive other people and not go off jumping into bed with them and thereby provoking the breakup of marriages. Okay, but, but how, how would this be genetically programmed as opposed to uh, uh, culturally inculcated? If it were just culturally inculcated, then there might be 53 tribes that have sex in public and 47 tribes that have sex in private. But almost all have sex in 
private. I take that to mean it's not that there's a single gene telling you that to have sex in private, but that there's a strong genetic predisposition to have sex in private, which occasionally gets overrun in the hippie generation, etc. Sure, but it's sure. the exception. What is it about the human psyche that we seek seclusion for sex? Are we back to self-consciousness? Two kinds, in fact. The self-consciousness of personal embarrassment, exposure, nakedness, shame. The self-consciousness of personal awareness, aware of oneself, being aware of the world, thinking about thinking. I like categorizing human uniqueness. What comes after sex? Culture, arts, religion. What enables these capacities? In Los Angeles, I head across town to Pasadena, to Fuller Theological Seminary, to meet an authority on human developmental science, Justin Barrett. I do think that in, on many dimensions, we are on a continuum with other animals. But there's one little property that I like to hang my hat on. It's meta-representation. So being able to form cognitive representations about representations, about mental states, having thoughts about thoughts, if you will. I not only need to be aware of myself and what's going on in my mind, but I need to be able to form thoughts about other thoughts, including maybe your thoughts. Mm. And then what can I do with that? Well, that changes the way I communicate with you, because instead of me just trying to get you to behave in a different way, I can try to change your ideas, and I can be deliberate about it, which means I can teach. It means we can collaborate together on, on projects, because you and I can be sure that we're sharing the same vision, because we are meta-representing that vision for an outcome. It also enables us to have religion, because you and I can be sure that we have the same beliefs about a third party, in this case, a god, for instance. Some would say that the meta-representational uh, capacity that we have is not fundamental, but language is fundamental because you can't do the meta-representational without the language. I think it actually might be the other way around. So when we talk to our dogs, we say, sit, and it sits. In fact, some very clever dogs can be trained hundreds, thousands of different complex commands. But notice they're always modifying their behavior to our commands. Mm -hmm. But humans seem to do something special with language, and that's they try to change each other's mental states, mm. right? When I uh, talk to my child, I don't say sit. Okay, sometimes I say okay. sit. Um, but I will show them things and explain things to them. I try to change their mental states. But to do that, and for them to understand that's what I'm doing with language, they have to understand that I and they are attending to the same thing and that I'm trying to change their mental states. So they have to have a theory of mind about you and be able to represent your mental state knowing what you're doing to them, so it becomes recursive. It sure looks that way to me. And so, yeah, I think that some rudimentary language probably doesn't need that kind of advanced theory of mind. But that advanced theory of mind takes language to a new place. If the mechanism for the, the generation of this cognitive capacity of meta-representation is not only language, what generates it? I think this is one that we're still exploring. It sure doesn't seem like it's necessary, though, for children to form 
a linguistic representation of other people's mental states. It might be an image, for instance. Mm -hmm. For me to understand what you're looking at, for instance, and be able to sort of inspect it in my mind. If that's the case, then, then this meta-representation has some fundamental value of itself if it cannot be reduced to only language. Well, uh, that'd be the line that I push, um, but I know I'm, I'm on controversial ground here. But I do take heart from examples like Helen Keller and some of the clear, high-ordered sort of thinking she's doing without having the benefits of a full-blown linguistic communication system. So it's, it's a fascinating possibility, at least I think. Now, it's certainly one that needs a lot more research to back it up. But this is the million-dollar question. How are we different from other species? Well, it's bound to be a handful of things, but uh, meta-representational ability sure looks like a promising place to look. So, why do I worry about human uniqueness? Because similarities and differences between humans and animals, the continuities and the discontinuities, probe the essence of human existence. The similarities and continuities are apparent. Biological parts, their structures and functions. It's the differences and discontinuities that offer insight, the higher-order features of mentality. So, what do humans have that animals do not? Self-consciousness, self-reflection, theory of other minds, meta-representations, metaphor. Language is key. But what follows from human uniqueness? Do meaning or purpose emerge? The appreciation of the possibility of meaning and purpose? Yes, sure. But an independent reality of meaning and purpose? No, not really. But why the appreciation if there is no reality? Another why question struggling to get closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.